it's kind of interesting being back here, kind of deja vu. It's uh, after a fair while when other things are familiar and the, what was familiar then comes back. Thank you, Denise, for that. And uh, yeah, um, this is an interesting message today that I have found very challenging following on from this series that Andrew started. Um, it's been very convicting and sometimes I don't even feel like a Christian bootlace. Um, and we probably all go through times like that where we know we're, we're far from the mark and, and this, this today's verses really hit that home. So anyway, greetings to everyone. Um, we're still at Smith's Lake, still renting, still wanting to get out, still looking at what the next step is. Um, still going down to Newcastle every second Thursday for grandparent duty for little Samuel. And that's always fun. Um, he's not even two years old and he's wearing me out, so I, I fear the days ahead. And it's like that old quote from Top Gun that, you know, my ego makes checks that my body can't cash. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's sort of, there's a few verses in the Bible that come right home that, you know, our days are numbered by the Lord and I'm sort of, I think that number's <laughs> shrinking very quickly. But anyway, God is good. Um, he's brought us all to this point in time for a reason and he also has um, a purpose for you. Actually, our title is about God's expectation. But anyway, we'll see in that. We're going to need God's help, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your good gifts in Christ. We thank you for this day, for life and health and peace and for the things we've been reminded of how privileged they are to be in this part of the Western world. And may we not get complacent or take them for granted, but realise that first and foremost we're your servants with whatever resources you have blessed us with. We ask that you'll open our hearts and minds to see and understand um, from this uh, little passage today of who you are, what the disciples were, and the crowds, and what we are, and more to the point what we should be. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Do you have an opinion about Jesus? I suppose some of you do. Um, most of you would probably have similar views because you've been informed by the biblical text. But if you ask that question out in the street, you're likely to get a myriad of answers for who Jesus is. We'll get back to that later. So where we're up to in this current series of who is Jesus? Who can recall the last four messages? Anybody? Was anybody here for them? Cheryl has notes. You've got to be able to pull it from memory. Well, Andrew kicked the series off by starting at the end of Mark's Gospel, talking about his death and resurrection, which wasn't expected and that uh, death had no power over Jesus and uh, he had the power to conquer it and come back to life. And he gave a background to Mark's gospel when it was written by John Mark, probably with uh, Peter's help verbally. It was before everything was an oral tradition, so we're so used to having texts and documents, um, we don't realise that in an oral society they record a lot of things. And it was written for non-Jews, so a lot of the Jewish customs are explained in that. And uh, 
It was a brief narrative of the key elements of Jesus. And so uh, it's about his uh, power and authority and how he did it. And Mark's gospel is brief. It's a gospel of action. There's bang, 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 bang. A whole lot of things that take place. And uh, it's, it's very rapid. And it's the briefest gospel. And it's all about the kingdom of God. Who remembers Doug's message? Oh, Luke was after. You're, you're after Andrew. Oh, you want to argue about this? <laughs> He's got the podcast. Doug. Doug, do you remember what you preached on? Heels. Heels. Right. Power over the physical realm. The things that we all aches and pains we suffer from, Jesus could suspend those to demonstrate his power. He gave signs and wonders. Thanks, Doug. That's good. He was listening. Um, then Luke. And Luke picked up the idea of Jesus, the power of a nature. Part of it. He did. What things did he do? And he walked on water. Yep. And he also picked up the idea of about teaching, didn't he? With parables, is that right? Right. You're losing two points. She's put them all together in one package. That's good. So Jesus, the teacher par excellence, he taught the kingdom of God and he taught him parables and things that people could identify with. Picture language. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. And he talked privately with disciples to elaborate on some of those things. Okay? And the soils that he talked about in one of the parables is about the different responses to the gospel. The rock and the thorns and all that. And some soils are fruitful. And he actually shared a little bit about where they were down at um, Robertson with the good soil down here and how things grew quickly, which was an example of how we could be good soils and be very, very fruitful. And what's the fruit? Fruit of the Spirit. Thank you. Which are? Bingo. You get her two points. Yeah, yeah. And then Graham. Graham spoke after that and what was his message? Now, I wasn't here for any of these, so. <laughs> Authority over? Nature. Yes. In fact, he is Lord of nature. He actually is the Lord of creation. But God can sometimes suspend the laws that uh, are in place when he demonstrates his power. It's interesting that some people are very taken up with special effects and superhuman powers and all that sort of stuff. And yet, the obvious thing, all that we need there is in there in Jesus. So he did that to demonstrate the kingdom of God. And he also provided for people's needs. He was the good shepherd. Um, and he cared for them. Even feeding of the 5,000, miracles like that. So... Leading up, the, and in some of those past messages, it's leading up and continuing on. And Andrew next week will probably take up the threads. I'm guessing I'm pulling all this together about who Jesus is. But there's a very important bit of 
text that we have this morning that will elaborate on that, what Jesus did. So there's a whole lot of things that have been happening and they're all very quick. Um, Jesus' cousin John had been arrested and he's been beheaded as a horrible, you know that story well, the 5,000 fed, he walked on water. Um, he gets into an argument with Pharisees about ceremonial cleaning. What defiles a person? It's not what we take in. Whether it's something that's not kosher. It's actually what comes out of the heart of man. And he healed uh, a Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was possessed and a deaf mute and then another feeding of the 4,000 with seven lo loaves. And the Pharisees wanted a sign a lot of evidence is there, and he said, none is going to be given. And that brings us to today's message. So today we're looking back in time to a little cameo um, of Jesus with his disciples. And they have been travelling around a bit. This is north of Galilee. Bethesda is on the north east corner of Lake Galilee. Um, Caesarea Philippi is about 40 k's north of that. You go out on the coast from there to Tyre, and he was around that area, been doing a lot of what we call itinerant ministry, healing people, and it was very difficult for him to get away from the crowds. And this event here is also recorded in Matthew. There's a bit more elaboration in Matthew of this. Uh, Mark's um, story here is a little bit um, condensed, and it's also in Luke's. Um, I actually received uh, like two titles for today. Um, I've put up Jesus Reveals His Messiahship and Plan. Um, I'm not sure which one was which, but I think um, Andrew gave me one that was called Jesus the Messiah Reveals His Plan and Expectation because there is an expectation in this. So it's actually revealing his messiahship, it's revealing his plan and also his expectation. And the whole thing about the gospel and all of this was this mystery that Paul talked about that was hidden for ages and people just didn't get it until Jesus came and he fulfilled that. That's where the Pharisees got it wrong. So what is the plan? I better use this little gizmo so you can follow along visually. going to work. Right, turn it on first. Yep. Check batteries, engage brain, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. Amazing. So Jesus is travelling around and he's uh, the plan. What is it? Is it fairly obvious? Well, to save the world, isn't it? Alright, that's the plan. Who's involved? Well, Jesus, the star member in the cast. But what about his followers? Are they involved in his plan? We have to see what happens. Um, what about us? Do we have a part to play? Hang on to that question. And what's the outcome? I take it the outcome is ultimately the glorification of Christ. And in that expectation, I think, I could be wrong, 
I think the expectation is on us as well. Anyway, what's the big deal about revealing his messiahship? And messiah is a Hebrew word for the word in Greek, which is Christ. Christ, Messiah. Okay. Now, question is, in Jesus' teaching, and he probably had some frustrating moments, why did he try to tell these slow-learning apostles that he was indeed the promised Messiah? I'm going to run through these basic elements just so you see what's happening through the text. Okay? disappeared? Is it going to reappear? Jesus posed a question. Actually, I'll go back. That was a bit quick. Jesus poses a question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? The apostles come back with a vague answer. Was it on the money? Elijah, one of the prophets, in Matthew's Gospel, I think even Jeremiah gets an mention. So there's all of that. And then what happens? Jesus reiterates the question to them. Directly to them. And then there's Peter's confession. It's interesting that we call it Peter's confession because I think it should have another name. He says, you are the Messiah. But we know from Matthew's Gospel it was a father who revealed that to him. Then Jesus' warning of secrecy. Well, now that you've got it, don't tell anyone. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't want that to get out yet. And this point in time is the commencement of Jesus' teaching about his passion, his suffering, what was going to happen and take place that he must go to Jerusalem. And he does it in plain talk. He doesn't um, teach in parables. He's just spelled out plainly to his disciples. And then Peter isn't happy with this. So he goes to Jesus and uh, spells out his objection that this is not a good plan. And then Jesus does a counter-rebuke to Peter and the disciples. Uh Uh-oh, go back, go back. It's not working. Right. And he comes down pretty hard on Peter, who's just made a confession that Jesus is Messiah. And then he says, Jesus has a go at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Pretty hard words. Bit of a warning there for us. We might be God's representative one thing, but we can be prone to coming out with the wrong stuff. So Jesus refutes any suggestion of an alternate plan, anything other than going to Jerusalem. And then Jesus spells out the cost of discipleship, which is about denying oneself,
Take up your cross and following him. And then there's just a plain verse there about the value of a human soul. It's just sort of left there. What value can you put on a human soul? And then the verse is about the essential condition of discipleship. And that's those last verses in that little segment. And then there's another one. And that's what the implication is. And I'll leave it there for a minute. So what is Jesus driving at going back to that question when he says, who do people say that I am? To give that to his disciples. Is, is Jesus got a problem? Like uh, he's saying, what's the goss? You know, what's the social comment on me? Could you imagine if Facebook and Snapchat were there that day? That would be a bit uh, crazy when you realise what it does in our day and age. I mean, is Jesus feeling a bit insecure and wanting some affirmation? Is he wanting to make sure people get it right and understand that he is the son of God and not just a prophet? Why is he asking this question anyway? That's if he doesn't have an identity crisis. Can you see what Jesus is getting at? It would be interesting being a proverbial fly on the wall and to listen to the, to the mood of that moment. We've been travelling around, getting together, having a bit of a debriefing and saying, who, who am I? And, I mean, that's if there was a wall for the fly to stick on. There probably wasn't out there in the doors. You know, was there a pregnant pause? And all the apostles are sort of looking at each other, wondering, who's going to answer this? Um, and as usual, Peter, good old Peter, he pipes up, but probably this time without putting his size nine and a half in his mouth, and he blurts out, you are the Messiah. And in Matthew's Gospel, it adds, the son of the living God. Pretty bold pronouncement with when in that day and age, if anybody came out with the idea that they are the son of God, it's a blasphemy. Um, so that's what he says. Now, the, of course, Messiah means, um, in the Jewish tradition, a promised deliverer, someone who was prophesied. Um, normally a leader regarded as a saviour, particularly of a country, or a group or a cause. And the whole thing of being a Messiah means the anointed one. So Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So has his identity got anything to do with his plan? This plan to save the world. Now we know it because we're this side of the cross. Have we worked out what his plan is? Are there any clues? Have the disciples figured out at this point in time, have they got any notion of what Jesus has in mind? And the irony in all of this is that in Peter's reply, the clue is in his answer, Messiah. Now in their minds too, they've got a bit of an idea what this Messiah, this leader, this anointed one is going to be. 
So then Jesus clarifies what's going on. And that's why in Matthew's Gospel it said that God revealed this to him. And so he says, Peter, you ain't the smart one here because this revelation does not come from man, but it is my Father in heaven who has revealed this to you. And that's in Matthew 16. That's, that's a parallel passage to this in Mark. And this is a key point to understand in the Gospel. Only God himself, this idea of revelation, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can reveal who Jesus is to anyone. Only God himself can grant the gifts of faith and repentance by the work of his Holy Spirit. Only God himself, by his Holy Spirit, can convict of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can enact the regeneration and new birth into the kingdom of God. It's all God's doing. So while Peter blurted out the words, it was given to him by God. And this passage is normally labelled Peter's Confession. I reckon a better title is God's Revelation to Peter. And then there's the thing, do not tell anyone about this. Verse 31, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and then Peter took him aside. In verse 31 you get that title, Son of Man. Peter's called him the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus labels himself Son of Man and that verse those words occur again back in 38. At the end of this passage, is, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And that verse is looking a long way forward to Jesus' second coming, when he'll come back again in power and glory. Now, this situation is happening before he's going to Jerusalem in the cross. And Jesus is using this Son of Man title about himself, which recalls verses back in Daniel chapter 7, the vision that Daniel received. Son of Man title in Daniel. So Daniel 7.13, In my vision at night I looked and there was one before me like the Son of, like the son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and he approached the Ancient of Days who was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This vision that Daniel had hundreds of years before, he's seeing this one, this son of man. It's not a man. This is a divine title. We sometimes get it wrong. We hear the title, Son of God. Well, Adam was the Son of God and lots of other people are given that name. But the Son of Man title that Jesus gave himself was only for him. And Daniel saw that and he approached the throne with the Ancient of Days, i.e. God the Father in his splendour, and was only unworthy enough to go there, to be part of that. And that's the vision that Daniel had. And it was probably a pretty troubling dream for Daniel, seeing all that. He was an astute man and God gave him this ability to see and understand those visions. And he did that for some of the, uh, the Babylonian emperors to show them their visions. And you know some of that from the book of Daniel. Now the interesting thing is this son of man theme in Daniel 
the title that Jesus takes up on himself before the cross, he's looking forward to when it's consummated. If we can have Revelation read, have a listen to these verses. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Alright, see that link? The vision of Daniel, those verses in Revelation, how Jesus described himself. Peter's finally got an idea of who Jesus is, being his disciples. I mean, was he just going to be another political leader? This is the key thing in this passage about Jesus' identity. What was revealed to Peter. And this is a turning point in the whole narrative. From here on in, Jesus tries to explain to his apostles that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of all the power brokers of the day. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and on the legal side, the Romans had to sign off politically that Jesus was to be executed. And that was Pilate's part, trying to wash his hands of it. But they were a bit powerless, being subjugated by the Romans. Pilate caved in and they got what they wanted. And Jesus is saying, this is where we're going. And then um, Peter's rebukes, looking at this, what lay ahead, uh-uh. That's not going to happen to you, Jesus. We, wrong plan, sorry. We can't go down this path. So Peter takes Jesus' eye and you know, whispers, no, can't do this. Um, you can almost imagine he probably wanted to yell it out, but he took Jesus aside. So this rebuke of Simon Peter, I'm guessing that all the disciples would have shared Peter's sentiment. They're all involved in this rebuke. Because the interesting thing is when you read the text, he's looking at all the disciples ticking Peter off. He knew what they were thinking. They could have all been very well-meaning at this time and said, yeah, God loves you and we have a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, what did the zealots want? And there was one of them in the band. Um, liberation from Rome. They wanted a deliverer to come and establish God's righteous kingdom. That's what everybody's aspirations were for. It turns out that Jesus' plan was the furthest from their minds. A suffering servant, a liberator who dies, what, no conqueror, no triumphant leader, a sacrificial messiah. Jesus, you ain't been reading your Old Testament right. That's what they thought. But the plan was for the restoration of his creation. The plan was a must was not negotiable. So Jesus hit Peter with this stronger counter-rebuke um, because Peter's idea is not in line with biblical revelation. Who hasn't read their Old Testament carefully now, eh, Peter? So Peter's inspired by God and then he speaks for Satan. And there's a warning here for all of us about how we stay in tune to God's will and understand his truth and be a good ambassador and not come out with the wrong stuff sometimes 
because we might feel that way. And it happens to a few Christians. So Jesus teaches that uh, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by all the chief priests and teachers of the law and yet must be killed, the finality of that death. He also says rise again, but you sort of wonder if anybody picked that up in all this micmash. And so he turned to Peter, rebuked him. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but only men. You've missed the mark. And at this point, um, Mark's Gospel notes that he called a crowd together, along with the disciples. There's a fair group of people here now, along with the disciples. And he began to instruct them on what lay ahead in this plan and this expectation. The expectation is that Jesus will fulfill his role as the Messiah, the anointed one, the suffering servant, as recorded in Isaiah. He would fulfill all those things for the purpose of saving this world, of restoring this creation, of saving each one of us. He was heading to Jerusalem to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whatever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Well, that question about just the value of a human soul. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? There's no answer to that. But in God's mind, there's incalculable value on every soul in this world. That's the way Jesus saw it. God loved his creation. He loves all of us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So squirm and get guilty of all the nasty, horrible things you've done and think about that and feel like... You probably don't want to recall all those memories. Christ died for you, for me. Paul even says, remember what you once were, lost in the kingdom of darkness with no hope in this world. And now you've been given hope. Great favour, great blessing. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, looking to the future, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Was Jesus talking about just that generation then? Anne's got it. I think those verses apply to us. I mean, the world's looking pretty bad in this day and age. And I don't think there's enough political intellect on this planet to solve some of the problems that we have in this world. There just isn't. And living God's way is clearly the only good solution. To humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, accept the pardon that Christ gives us because of his shed blood that appeased the Father, because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins, because God loves a contrite heart. So, 
The expectation is that Jesus is going to fulfil his plan. He knows his part. And I think a second expectation was that his followers would be faithful. They will deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. In other words, emulate Jesus. That's what's incumbent on us. Now there's a challenge. All the people of Jesus' day knew what taking up one's cross meant. Crucifixions were everyday occurrence and they were brutal. Not very pleasant. In terms of a marketing strategy, it's not good for the gospel, is it, to tell that to people? Taking up your cross wasn't a journey, it was a one-way trip. And denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when, for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things or activities. And in the uh, Episcopal calendar, you have Lent, and people ask, what are you giving up for Lent and all this sort of stuff? You know, ice cream, chocolate, well, yeah, big deal. I have nothing for that. <laughs> yeah. But, but we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. We have to make a decision, submit our will to his will. It has to be deliberate. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And we're looking forward to the Son of Man his coming in glory and triumph. There's great hope in that. And Jesus spelled it out here. Yeah, there's some conditions for being a Christian. And in some respects, I know I'm having difficulty with it. We should think that is nothing compared to what lay ahead. Jesus did it. Counting is nothing. His time of suffering for the glory that lay ahead. We find it hard to do that because we look for instant gratificational results. It's very, you think of kids, it's a very hard notion to get through to kids to when everything is instant gratification. You've got to get the lollipop straight away and you put it in your mouth, you've got to have that sugar fix. Adults are the same. The idea of endurance, perseverance, self-control, the fruits of the spirit, of, of being sacrificial in your life, that's a real challenge. And I take it we can't do that ourselves. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Remember at the beginning I said, do you remember? Uh, what's your opinion of Jesus? Do you, have a, do you have a more informed opinion of Jesus now? Is your opinion in line with the Bibles? Peter's first statement was, but then he messed it up. Jesus had a good opinion of himself. He wasn't looking for the gossip of what you know, people thought of him. He wondered at this point of time 
where people, where the people were up to him in understanding that he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of Man. And we're talking about the historical Jesus of Nazareth, right? Got that right? Not Jesus de Silva in Brazil? And Jesus is a very common name in Brazil, actually. The historical Jesus of Nazareth. Born into this world. In our songs we had Emmanuel, God with us. He was incarnate. He took on flesh. He was still divine. Do you consider him to be the Messiah, the anointed one? Do you believe him to be the suffering servant, promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament? Do you accept him as the Son of Man, a triumphant one who is seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days? This is the plan and expectation that the Son of Man revealed to his apostles. Are you part of it? Thank you.